Thank you. Good morning. But that's just one opinion. I couldn't help but think of when Raul was leading singing about a song leader that um, used to lead singing at a church I preached for when we lived in Boston. And I promise you, every time that we used to in those days announce an invitation song, and sometimes you say, well, this is the song after the lesson or whatever. But the way he would say it was, this is the song we'll sing for encouragement after Ross speaks to us. That's, that's the way he always said it. <laughs> Let me ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, please. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 9. While you're doing that, I'll tell you a story about my wrist so you won't have to ask. And I won't have to repeat myself uh, so many times. So I had carpal tunnel surgery. And I've got a 14-year-old friend at church. Her name's Josie. And uh, uh, she saw my hand wrapped up like this in this little soft bandage, and she said, well, what happened? And you know how when somebody's sick or they've had surgery, we always say, well, I hope you get to feeling better, or you know, hope you get well soon, that sort of thing. Well, well, Josie saw my hand, she goes, well, what happened? I said, well, I've got, I had to have carpal tunnel surgery. And she said, well, what's the problem? I said, well, I've had numbness in my fingertips for, for a long time, maybe too long. I may have waited too late to do anything about it, but... So what they do with this, if you've got numbness like that, they go in and there's a little band in your wrist and they, they cut it so that your nerves have more room. It won't be, you know, strangled. And she goes, well, I hope it gets to feeling. And she stopped herself to say, well, yeah, that's what we want. <laughs> a feeling would be feeling better, but uh, anyway. Uh, we come rounded the corner this morning to come to the parking lot and there's the old sign from the old building. Uh, Church of Christ. And I remember playing around that sign as a little boy. It seemed like... Uh, after Wednesday night and after Sunday night, everybody would come out to the yard uh, on the grass and visit. And we'd run around, and I can remember the, how the lights were on that sign very clearly. But I want us to talk a minute about what it means to be a church of Christ. We use that label to kind of identify ourselves, but I want us to focus on that middle word. What does it mean to be a church that is truly of Christ. Jesus used the analogy of uh, his followers are like the branches and he's the vine. And if that's true, then we share DNA, our identity's the same, we're we're, we're like him. That's what that means, to be a church of Christ. We're a church like Christ. Uh, Which means we have to really focus a lot on the Gospels. Uh, We think of uh, the Gospel of Luke really precedes what we see in Acts. That if you want the church in Acts, you have to study the Jesus of the Gospels, that sort of thing. The seed is Jesus, the fruit is the church. So we really want to explore the Gospels at times like that. So the idea here this morning is that if we're going to really be a church of Christ, we've got to become like the Christ of the church. And I just wanted to point out three little three little things I see in the life of Jesus this morning. The one begins uh, in Matthew chapter 9, uh, verses 9 through uh, 13, and this, the idea here is that Jesus values association with sinners uh, more than disassociation from them. Uh, so let's read this story. Uh, Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 uh, through uh, 13. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he said. So Matthew did. Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many Tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher do that? Why does he associate with people like that? And Jesus responded, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, 
It's the sick. So go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus is quoting Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. It's God saying, I desire a showing mercy to people more than I desire how you do a temple worship, or maybe in our case, how we do Sunday mornings. You know, God wants us to treat people really, really well. We read in Luke 15 where uh, the scenario that precedes Jesus telling about the lost coin and the lost uh, uh, sheep and the lost sons, right? It's prefaced by this that said many tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. And I just think to myself, okay, what kind of life do I have to be living for people who are far, far away from the will of God at the moment to want to be with me? What kind of life must I I be living? And so, boy, that's a challenging thing to think about. And then I look in Luke chapter 7. If you look there with me, Luke chapter 7, verse 36. Luke 7, 36. It's on page 912 if you have the right Bible. It says, now one of the Pharisees, we're going to learn in a minute that his name is Simon, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and sat at the table. Now, uh, I remember I was preaching on this text about two years ago, and, and I was reading this text, and it occurred to me at the moment that, you know, you make the obvious thing, the obvious observation that Jesus went home with tax collectors, and he went home with Pharisees, and, you know, Jesus would, would go home with anyone. And at the moment, I realized Jesus was a single man. We never say no to any dinner invitation. Uh, but I think suspect that Jesus has something more noble going on than, than, than maybe I, I might. But here he is at the home of Simon, and in comes this woman. She clearly hasn't been invited. And Simon can't understand why Jesus doesn't say, Get away from me, gal. She comes in, and, and she anoints the feet of Jesus with her tears and wipes them with her hair. And Simon is saying to himself, I can't believe, I can't believe a person like Jesus is letting a person like her touch him. You know, if it were Simon in the same position as Jesus, he'd say, get away from me, get away from me. But Jesus values association with sinners. And if I were picking any one issue for churches today to focus on, it'd be this. It'd be this one. That somehow we have gotten the impression, and I think I can show you where we got it. We've gotten the impression that our job, in order for us to live holy lives, we have to disassociate ourselves from sinners. And so it's like we've erected this fortress. And we're hiding behind the walls of the fortress because the world is a scary place. The world, there's some scary stuff going on in our world, morally. Uh, some, it's the morality that scares us. For some, it's the diversity that scares us. For some, it's the technology that scares us. If you know the old story of uh, the, the Odyssey, Odysseus uh, wants to listen to the sirens, these women on the island, the, the island of the sirens. He wants to hear their song, but he knows, like everybody knows, that if you hear the song of the siren, it's irresistible. And you must give in to it, and then you get there. And I can't remember if they boil you in oil or... I can't remember what the sirens do to you, but you don't survive it, right? Uh, but but Odysseus, uh, uh, Odysseus is, is, um, is, is curious. And so do you know how this goes? He, he causes the men on his ship, he, they put wax in their ears so they can't hear the sirens, and then he forces them to tie him to the mast 
So he can't go to the Sirens once they... And so they sail by the island of the Sirens and, and that way Odysseus gets to, uh, gets to listen to their song without succumbing to it and without his men succumbing to it. Do you know this story? Well, what's scary today is the song of the Sirens is downloadable. And we carry it in our pockets. You know, and, and so the world has invaded our spaces, all of them, and invaded our hearts. And we have been captivated uh, by the world. And so, um, look, look with me in James chapter 4. I think this is where we got the idea that we should disassociate from the world. James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 4. You adulterous people. Now, when biblical writers speak of adultery, sometimes they're talking about you know, marriage adultery. But if it's spiritual, they're talking about somebody who has two lovers. right? You're trying to love God and you're trying to love uh, the world. Uh, and so in this case, verse 4, he says, You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Well, that sounds like friendship with the world would be terrible. right? We don't want that. Or do you think Scripture says without reason... Um, I'm sorry, sorry, I skipped a verse, uh, half a verse. Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. So we, Scripture speaks, as it does in 1 John 2, about uh, don't love the world or anything uh, that has to do with the world, right? Uh, but this story has a context, and rather than just lifting out verse 4, let's try to see what he's talking about. So look at verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires... That battle, where? Within you. You want something but don't get it. You kill and covet, covet and you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you do ask, uh, you ask with wrong motives that you might spend it on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know the friendship with the world? And, and so he's talking about not, not the world as, as spatial where uh, it's out there and we're trying to keep it from getting in here. It's not that is that the world is in here. <laughs> you know, we're carriers. It's a set of desires, often, that the Bible speaks of when it speaks of the world. You can't live with this set of desires and a set of desires that are trying to do the will of God. And that's where we've, But we've gotten this idea that the world is out there and we're trying to stay away from it. So, we have this conversation with our kids. We're concerned about who our kids hang with. We're concerned about who our our kids are friends with because we recognize the uh, very powerful influence of peers. And, and that's great. That's right. We should be concerned. But at some point, we need to have a second conversation with our kids. Okay, now that you've, uh, you've established your identity in Christ, go get them. Find that person at school who uh, is the most uh, uh, troubled kid, the most uh, uh, lonely kid, the kid who seems furthest from Jesus. And ask them to your birthday party. Ask them to come over for the weekend, right? Uh, but we've, we've, we've just got this idea that we're supposed to stay away from the world and Jesus doesn't have that idea. Jesus acquired the reputation of being a friend of sinners. It's Matthew 11. A friend of sinners. I have a friend who works on campus 
uh, in one of our offices, and this subject came up in their conversation. And my friend John, he's in my small group on Sunday nights, he asked his co-worker, well, well, don't you have any friends who are not Christians? And you know what she said? Well, I try not to. I'm like, where did she get that idea? She didn't get it from Jesus. Because Jesus was a friend of sinners. We've gotten disassociation so ingrained in us, sometimes we don't even want to be with people of other Christian tribes. We've got a church in our community, it's the Assembly of God, down the road from our school, and every year they set up this living nativity, this massive thing, you drive, you don't walk through it, you drive through it, all these sets they put up, so they try to recreate Bethlehem. And the people are in costume, and they've got all these storefronts and homes, and there's fires. They even rent camels. I don't even know where you would rent a camel in Arkansas. But there's camels there and donkeys, and, and while you're driving through, you tune to this particular radio frequency, and you hear Justin Lawson, he's a former student of mine and their worship leader, uh, he, he's telling the story of Jesus from Luke's Gospel. And you just drive through, well, it's a lot of work, and it's cold, and by the time this is done for three or four nights, these people are tired. And so, uh, um, a youth group in our community decided, why don't we go and help them, a youth group from Churches of Christ decided to go help them Put all this stuff away. This is a lot of work to put this stuff away and you're tired. You're kind of excited when you put it up, but you're exhausted when it's time to tear it down. So boy, if they could use help, it'd be now. And you know what a parent wrote? said, I'm concerned that our children are hanging with the Assembly of God people. And I'm like, oh my goodness. My friend Alan taught me this about two months ago. He said this. He said, God changes the world through conversation. You think about it. When Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel, he doesn't mean stand behind up here, you know. He could have said, go into all the world and converse about the gospel. Tell people about it. You know, one of the burdens I carry of being right about everything And you are too, right? How many of you are wrong about something? No, we all think we're right about something, right? In the moment we discover we're wrong, we change our minds and we're right again. Uh, So we're always right all the time about everything. And so we want people to see it our way, right? Even our our, uh, Christian friends of other tribes, we think we got something to say to them about some stuff, right? You have to sit down and talk to them, right? That's the only way it happens. And we don't even want to be with them. How absurd is that? Right? What, what, I don't even, are, are, they just, are they skipping are they skipping Paul's letters and Jesus' gospels and going right to the maps? Is that the part of the Bible they're reading? I, I don't know where they get this idea that they're supposed to disassociate with folks. No siree. Jesus associated with people that needed to hear. He had dinner with them. He went to their homes. He made friends with them, not as a strategy to teach them about the Lord. He made friends with them because people need friends. They need people who will hold on to their hope about their future when they themselves have lost it. When they can't imagine their futures turning out well. They need somebody to remind them, no, your story's not done. Let me hold on to that hope for you until your time to pick it up again. And we walk with them 
And we, we, we talk to them about their future in the Lord. We talk to them about their value in the Lord until they can re-embrace it uh, for themselves. But God changes the world through conversation. Right? Uh, as a person who likes do lists, you know, it, my do lists begin with make a do list so I can cross that off and get. And I've already got momentum, right? And uh, here Jesus is. You open up the Gospel of John in John chapter two, and Jesus is spending all afternoon at this wedding feast. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what a waste of time, right? Jesus, you only, you got a world to save, and you only got three years to do it. We learned so, get up and do something. And I think Jesus would say, what do you think I'm doing? Because God changes the world to conversation. You read John 4, that God changes the world through conversation. And if we want people to be different, guess what? And so, we, we have to, we have to like Jesus, we have to look up in the trees as he's walking through Jericho. And, and, and there he is, Zacchaeus, you know. All by himself. I bet the disciples didn't see him. No, this is a parade. The disciples are like, thank you for coming out, folks. We're with Jesus. You're not with Jesus. We're the twelve. You're not the twelve. But thanks a lot for coming out. We appreciate it. But not Jesus. He's not caught up in all that. He's looking. He's looking for people who are looking for God. And so, so he calls Zacchaeus down and says, Zacchaeus, I'm going home with you. And uh, Landon Saunders said, you know Zacchaeus burned bark all the way down the tree. You know, he was just so excited. You're picking me? Yeah, get on down here. So uh, they go off together, and what do they do? We don't know exactly what they said, but as a result, Zacchaeus emerges and says, I'm going to be different. I'm going to live differently. I'm going to do right by people. I want us to be different. My life is transformed. And Jesus calls, it's the only time I know in the Gospels that Jesus calls someone a son of Abraham. And if you're a Jew, that's exactly what you want to be called, right? This man too is a child of Abraham. Right? And he says that to, of all people, a tax collector. Jesus uh, sees people for who they can become. But association not disassociation. So what I would recommend our doing, what I'm trying to practice, is I'm trying to see those people who are most different than me. And I try to ask myself, what would it be like for that person to become my next good friend? We're politically, we have different views. Maybe socioeconomically we're different. Educationally we're different. Economically we're different. What would, it, what would it sound like? What would we talk about? What would we do together if we were, fri- if we were trying to become friends? And I think so we need, to, we need to invite. But we need to initiate. We need to include. And we need to imagine. What would it be like for Zacchaeus to be my next good friend? Jesus values association over disassociation. I understand I'm supposed to let you out at 10.30, so I'll move on. Kidding. Uh, Matthew chapter 12. Jesus not only values association with sinners over disassociation, he values people over policy, even church policy. 
So Matthew chapter 12, you know this phrase we just read in Matthew 9 about I desire mercy, not sacrifice? It's going to be repeated here. It's a phrase that only occurs in Matthew's Gospel in our understanding of the Gospels according to John chapter 20 and following that, that uh, the, the Gospel writers seem to have the freedom, some freedom, to include stories of Jesus that they want to include in the particular portrait of Jesus they're painting. And so it looks like Jesus, uh, Matthew wants to include these statements by Jesus about desiring mercy, not sacrifices, because he's writing to a group of people who are pretty caught up in doing church correctly, doing Judaism correctly, but they're not so caught up in being merciful to people who need it. So chapter 12, uh, they're going through the grain fields on the Sabbath. Have you figured this out, that anytime you're reading the Gospels and you read the word Jesus and the Sabbath in the same sentence, you know there's going to be trouble? Right? It's not because Jesus didn't honor the Sabbath. He did. But the stories that make it uh, to press in the Gospels are those stories where somebody needs something. They're sick. They're hungry. They're tormented by a demon. And when you see that, it doesn't matter what day it is because they're human beings and they need mercy and you give, it, you give them what they need. But here they are, they're eating grain on the Sabbath, and the Pharisees said, what are you doing? You're doing something that's unlawful on the Sabbath. And Jesus' response is, yeah, but there's precedent for this. David himself uh, went into the holy place and ate the showbread because why? He and his companions were hungry. And when you see hungry people, you give them something to eat. Right? You know, um, there was a young man in our community, 14 years old, and, and he took his own life. And, and when you saw a picture of this young man, you'd say, that boy was bullied. You, you could, he, he was a stereotypical child who is an easy target for, for bullies. And that happened to such degree that, that, that he took his life. Now, I don't know uh, all the details of this story, but uh, he had a favorite song that the family wanted to play in his memorial service, but the song had uh, an instrument in it. And the church they approached first about having his funeral there said, well, we don't allow instrument, instrumental music in our buildings uh, on Sunday or Saturday or Tuesday or never. We just, you know, and you know when you make exceptions, it gets difficult to, right? And so that's why those policies exist without exception. Now, I want you to imagine this. That here's a child, here's a family who are experiencing what I imagine to be the most difficult experience that you can face. Not just that they will face, that any of us will face. I've lost people. You have too. We know grief, and it doesn't just come when you lose people. It's when you lose dreams. It's when you lose, you know, your life doesn't turn out the way you thought it was, and blah, 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 and so you grieve, right? We know grief. But I'm thinking to myself, wow, if I lost a child in the most tragic way that that can happen, I'm not sure I could get out of bed again. And so here's this family in a time of their deepest need and this church sent them down the road 
for that memorial service rather than flex their policy. I went to that funeral. I know that young man's grandfather well. It was so crowded in this much smaller venue that I had to sit out in the lobby and you couldn't hear anything. And so I eventually left. And I thought to myself, what are we thinking? Uh, years ago, we had a young man in our community, 18 or 19, killed in a car wreck. His family weren't church attenders. And one of our staff members had the good sense to pick up the phone and call them and say, look, we are so, so sorry. And, and, and we know you don't know us, but we would be honored if you would use our facilities for your son's memorial. Because you know how funeral chapels are small. This is a well-known family. There are going to be a lot of people present. And there wasn't... Now, you're welcome to use our facilities, but we have some policies about our building use that we need you to know before... No! Come. Come, welcome, right? Years ago, Nita and I directed a summer camp uh, near where we live, and we did that for eight summers. And um, anytime a child wanted to be baptized... I mean, good news, right? So if you're the camp director and you call home, the first thing you have to say is, hello, it's Ross from camp. First of all, nobody's hurt. <laughs> because when, when parents get a call from camp, you're expecting a broken arm or something, right? Trampoline injury. Um, and, and so, uh, no, no, it's good news. Your child wants to be baptized. And so you talk to the child. Do they know what they're doing? Yes. And then you start asking the child or the teen uh, who it is, you know, how they want this to happen. Uh, can the camp be present? Would you rather it just be your cabin? You know, when, you know, can the parents come? You work out all those things. And then eventually you ask the child, well, who would you like to baptize you, right? And sometimes it's their counselor, or sometimes it's their parent, their dad, or, or sometimes, you, know, uh, you know, it could be anyone, right? So um, this girl, this little 11-year-old girl, said, well, I want my Bible class teacher to baptize me because she's the one that taught me that I needed to do this. Well, at Camp Dakota, men teach boys, women teach girls, and it did flash through my mind that somebody might be uncomfortable with this, but I went to her Bible teacher and I said, look, you know, Joella, or whatever her name was, uh, wants, to, wants you to baptize her. Would you be willing to do that? I'm asking you, would you do that? She says, yeah, I'd do that. And so we gathered there at the creek uh, uh, side. There's 200 people present. And I always try to use that moment as a teaching moment because not all of our kids come from church families. And so here's what the Bible says about baptism. And here's what, here's what the baptism's about and that sort of thing, right? And here Joelle is asked to be baptized. So I've asked, uh, I, she wanted her, her Bible teacher. So I asked her Bible teacher. Her Bible teacher consented. And so I sat on the stump where I usually sit at those moments, <laughs> the tree stump. And in walked Joella with her Bible class teacher, her Bible class teacher said, Joella, do you believe that Jesus is Christ, the Son of God, and he died for your sins? Yes, I do. Then I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and gifts in your sins, gifts of the Holy Spirit, all that stuff we say. And she baptized her, and we applauded, and we sang, and we dried her off, and we surround her and pray for her like we always do. But as Joella and her Bible teacher entered the water, here comes a couple of staff members, and they seem in a hurry to get to the waterfront. And I've talked with these staff members before, I thought, okay, this is going to be a problem. And sure enough, a few days later, I got an email from this staff member who said, 
wow, I can't believe you let that happen. I can't believe you let a woman baptize someone at camp. Don't you know that if area churches knew that this was going on at Camp Dakota, they'd quit sending their kids and they wouldn't do this and they'd quit kidding. Now I know he says that the Bible doesn't specify that it's really critical who baptizes, but blah, 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 right? So now I have to have a conversation with my supervisor and the staff member. We gather for lunch. We exchange pleasantries. We eat our salad. And they said, okay, we've got to talk about this. And so I said to him, well, first of all, don't ever send me a letter like that again. Because the language you use about fear of what will people think, fear about what other churches will think about this, is the exact language that was used 60 years ago to keep our black brothers and sisters out of schools and churches. Don't ever send me a letter like that again. And secondly, I said, this reminds me of the day that Jesus went into the synagogue on the Sabbath, to Mark 3, a man with a withered hand is there, and he says, Jesus, would you heal me? And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I'd be, I'd be delighted to heal you, but it's the Sabbath. And if I heal you on the Sabbath, I'm going to catch all kinds of griefs from the area synagogues. So if it'd be more convenient for me, if we could, baptize, if we could uh, heal you on Monday, is that okay? Remember when Jesus said that? No, you don't, because he didn't say that, right? He said, of course, Sabbath, Shmabbath. The Sabbath was made for humanity, right? The Sabbath was meant to be life-giving. Okay? And so I said, I'll do what you ask. It won't happen again. But I said, I think we ought to be ashamed of ourselves. Because on the day that we say is the most important day of this little girl's life, and that's what we say, We say her decision to follow Jesus is the most important decision she'll make and the day of her baptism is the most important day of her life. We say that we want to get our preferences over hers. And that's what this is. These are our preferences. But Jesus put people above policy. And you'll notice he does that every time. Because God sent him to heal humanity. Person by person, person by person. Very quickly, not only does Jesus value association and does he um, value people over policy, let me ask you to look with me very briefly. Uh, I know we're nearing our end of our time. Maybe we have ended it, I don't know. Luke 4. This is a story I've been hovering over for two years now. It's a, it's a story that, that causes me to wonder how that tradition, which is a good thing ordinarily, uh, there's a, a man, a writer, who said that tradition, you have to listen closely to this, I have to repeat it to myself slowly to re-understand it every time, tradition is the living faith of the dead. In other words, it's the stuff that gets passed on that gives us life. You know, Traditions like the, uh, the rail on the highway, on the curved highway, it keeps us on the path. Uh, We're going to experience tradition this week. I'm going to go to Denver and gather with my children. And if we don't have that little pink frozen fruit salad that mom makes every year, it isn't Thanksgiving. I don't care what else is on the table. Okay? Right? I don't care who's there or what we're eating. If the little pink dessert isn't there, it's nothing. Right? Uh, Because that's our tradition. Right? And and, and we love making it and we love consuming it and we love talking about uh, grandma and her recipes and all that sort of stuff. Right? Tradition is a good thing. Until it trumps truth. 
And when it, then it becomes traditionalism, which Pelican says is the dead faith of the living. Traditions, the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And I've just wondered why we're so attached, so attached, uh, that we can't hear the truth. And this is an amazing story. Luke 4.14 is the first story of ministry that Luke tells about Jesus. He goes home to his hometown synagogue. And the story makes that clear uh, in the verses that precede this. He's been traveling elsewhere, doing stuff elsewhere, but he goes to his hometown synagogue, much like I'm here this morning. This is my home church, right? Jesus goes to his home church. Uh, and there he's handed the scroll of Isaiah. And uh, he, he's looking for something. <laughs> It's, in, it's a scroll. And he, he's saying to himself, man, it sure would help if they had chapters and verses. So eventually somebody adds those, right? And he finds where it is written. Right? And this is the text he reads. Uh, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has what? Anointed me. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me. And you know, and I only learned this too late in my life, that uh, the word Christ and the word Messiah, they're from different languages. Messiah came from a Hebrew word, Christ from a Greek word, but they mean the anointed one. Did you know that? I learned that late. I thought Christ was Jesus' last name for a long time. You know? Jesus Christ. We call him Jesus Christ, and everybody I knew had a last name. I thought that was his last name. Jesus Christ, son of Jer Joseph and Mary Christ. If you drove by their house, you'd see it on the mailbox. The Christ live here. And that's what it is. But no, it's a title. He's the anointed one. And he's saying this, this, the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the captives and freedom and, and for the poor, you know, all this stuff. And then he rolls it up and sits down and says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And if you read the text, it says the church, the synagogue people can't say enough good about him. They saw this young man grow up and they're talking, oh, oh, we just, you know, I used to teach him in synagogue school. I just want you to know I had a hand in forming this young man. And the other person said, yeah, well, he lived down the street from me and he was at my house every, you know, Thursday, after, Friday afternoon until it was time to go home to start Sabbath and blah, 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 blah. And, and one of them says, you know, I think he's still single. I have a niece and I just wonder. But it says they, they were just, they were all marveling at his gracious words. They just couldn't say enough good about him. And then you skip down about five verses and it says they tried to drive him off the hill and throw him off. I've been to this hill. Uh, you don't survive a, a hill like this. It's this big rock ledge jutting out and if you get off that thing, it's, well, it's hundreds of yards down there. What happened? One minute they couldn't say enough good about him and the next minute they want to kill him. And you know what he does? He tells them two stories. Stories have the power to do that. He said, I want to tell you a story about Elijah. And they said, oh, we love Elijah. Elijah such a great prophet. Remember that about the Baal? Oh, Elijah, we love. Tell us, Jesus. Tell us about Elijah. He said, well, Elijah was hungry. Yeah. And so God wants to feed Elijah. Well, feed Elijah. We've got to save Elijah. And, and you know who he used? Yeah, he used a widow. Yeah, but the point is, Jesus says, that God used a widow from the region of Zarephath. This was a Gentile widow. And the story says it's not as if there weren't some Israel, uh, widows in Israel. There were plenty of widows in Israel, but God didn't pick them. He picked the Gentile. What do you think about that? People kind of lean back in there and says, well, I don't know. What are you trying to say? And he says, well, i got another story. This one's about Elisha. Well, we like Elisha, we think. What do you want to say about him? Well, Elisha was sent to heal a, uh, a leper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and he was sent to Naaman, a Syrian. And it wasn't as if there were no lepers nearby in Israel. 
So you have this recurring line. There were plenty of widows in Israel. There were plenty of lepers in Israel. But God sent these two prophets to Gentiles. What do you think about that? Because Luke is all about uh, trying to hold up those things in the life of Jesus where Gentiles and, and tax collectors who were treated like Gentiles and Samaritans who were thought to be like, you know the story of the Good Samaritan? Only Luke tells us that story. Zacchaeus, only Luke tells us that story. Uh, uh, the ten lepers, and one of them says thank you, and that person who said thank you was a Samaritan, only Luke tells us that story. Why, 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 why? Because Luke is interested in holding up those elements in the life of Jesus where Gentiles are valued by God. Well, these people didn't want to hear that. Anytime you tell people who think they're the only ones that they're not the only ones, and you got good proof for it, <laughs> they'll turn on you. I have some experience with this. Okay? I call this the Jesus test, and we'll end with this. The Jesus test is this. Jesus comes to our church, or He comes to us individually. Jesus comes to our church. If Jesus walked in this morning and said, excuse me, before you dismiss, i got something to say. And Jesus comes up here and says, you know... And, and to qualify as the Jesus test, you've got to pick something that you just can't imagine that Jesus would say that. You, you, no, what? You, he couldn't say that. But Jesus comes up here and says, you know, uh, uh, you guys have really misread the scriptures about the instrument. That, that we, the Father and I really prefer the instrument. I don't know how you kind of, I mean, I can ex- understand how you kind of got to where you got, but listen... Um, you know, that's, you've kind of got this theological gymnastics that gets you to an acapella practice. And it is a beautiful practice. Uh, but from now on, I want you also to be instrumental. You've got a month to put a band together, and then let's get to it. Right? We'd go... <laughs> and I'm not sure we'd do it. Uh, individually. I think if Jesus came to my church and said, I want all you gun owners to, to lead the way, I need Christians to lead the way, the only way we're going to win this gun debate is if we give up something, so I want you to turn in all your guns. And I'm a gun owner. I enjoy shooting. I enjoy doing something over here and make something happening over there. Kind of fun. Uh, but, but I think some people go, uh-uh, we ain't doing that. Well, you can have my old shotgun because it doesn't really fire anyway, but you can, mm-mm. And I know what it would be for Ross. If Jesus came to me and said, Ross, I want you to sell your horse, your, your, your horse, your house. I don't have a horse. sold that last year. Um, I, I want you to sell your har- house next to Harding Drive. I want you to resign your job at Harding and I want you to move to... And I know what country he'd say that would be the place in the world that I would most uh, not want to live. I know what that place is. doesn't matter that you do. But Jesus says, I want you to quit your job at Harding. I want you to move there. Uh, just count on living the rest of your life there. Your kids can come visit periodically, but I want you to die in that country representing the gospel there for me. You know what I'd say? First, I'd say, can I see some ID? Because I want to make sure that, that you who you are say you are. And then I know I'd say, can we please talk about this? Can, is this open for negotiation? I, 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 I don't understand. 
it seems I'm making at least a teeny difference over here, and I, 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 I can't speak that language. I don't know those customs. I wouldn't even enjoy living there. And can, we, can we just talk about this? And, and I think the Jesus test is really a mirror for us individually in churches that we stand in front of and we ask, Jesus, am I withholding anything from you? Because on my best days, I don't want to do that. On my best days, I want to lay everything down. I don't even want to have a will. I want it to be as if we've downloaded your will and I've got a whole new operating system going on in here and I don't even have choices. That's what I want on my best days. Of course, the problem is I don't have best days every day. And there's a lot of days that I go... Jesus, can we talk about that? I, I, I don't understand. Right? But the question's worth asking. Right? Jesus values truth over tradition, and sometimes that truth is going to ask us to give up something that we've held dear, um, but it's not all that he wants. So, uh, this morning, um, if you don't hear anything else, let me just say, Put your nose in the Gospels. I don't think we will gain full benefit from what Jesus has to say unless we put ourselves in the shoes of those to whom he's speaking. So when he's at the home of Simon, we can't be standing behind Jesus going, yeah, go, Jesus, go. You're like me. You know, <laughs> uh, I do what you do. We have to think we're Simon. We have to pretend that we're Simon for a little while. We have to pretend that we're not only the woman caught in adultery, but we have to pretend we're the men who bring her if we're going to hear and get full benefit of the words from Jesus. So let me just point you to the Gospels. I believe with all my heart we ought to be a church that is of Christ. But to be that, we must become like the church, or like the Christ that is the Christ of the church. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you for this church and its history. I myself am a great benefit of Bible teachers, deacons, friends, simple people, loving people who loved me and showed me your way. I'm thankful for the givers who built this facility. I'm thankful for those who give now to support so many ministries and missions. Lord, we're all on our way as individuals and churches. We're never fully there. And so I just ask, Lord, that you give us the courage to discern what our next steps are as a church, in this community, and as individuals in the various contexts and roles uh, in which we live. Bless us, Lord. Uh, we want what you want. And uh, pray that you form our hearts in a way to desire even more. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. Let's stand in